0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Indust, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrei Nye about his new book, Immersion, Narrative and Gender Crisis in Survival Horror Video Games. Before we jump in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify and share this episode with your friends. And now back to the show. The book at hand investigates the narrativity of some of the most popular survival horror video games and the gender politics implicit in their story worlds. In a thorough analysis of the genre that draws upon detailed comparisons with the mainstream action genre, the author and editor places his analysis firmly within a political and social context. Andre, welcome
2: to the show. Um Thank you, Rudolf, for your invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, It's really an honor. And uh, I hope I can provide you with uh, satisfying answers to your questions. I'm pretty
1: sure that will happen. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing
2: right now. Um, thank you for the question. So I am Dr. Andrei Nae. My full name is Andrei mor but I publish under the name Andrei Nye. Uh, I am a lecturer at the University of Bucharest, where I teach two courses in game studies, one of them uh, which is dedicated to uh, the study of video games as narrative media. So it's basically an introduction to the study of video games as narrative media. And the second course, uh, which discusses video games and cultural identity, so I look at the way in which cultural identities, well, as many as I can include in fourteen weeks, are represented and simulated in video games. Uh, yes, I am the author of Immersion, Narrative and Gender Crisis in Survival Horror Video Games*, published by Routledge. Uh, I am. I have also just um, successfully finished a uh, research project which whose manager I was on colonialism in video games and I am currently under contract with uh, De Gruyter for a uh, edited volume uh, about um, colonialism in video games the volume will be most likely be entitled Colonial Intersections in Video Games where I hope to provide a uh, more and un- more encompassing post-colonial critique of video games more encompassing than the ones than the very valuable existing analysis which uh, have already been published uh, this would be my short bio uh, as far as my my favorite video game is concerned uh, unsurprisingly my favorite video game now obviously it's pretty difficult to establish what one's favorite video game is in as much as it is very difficult to establish what one's favorite TV series or film or novel is but um i think it's safe to say that my favorite video game is silent hill 2 uh it's a video game which i played well quite a few years back and uh, it is one of the reasons why uh, why i um, devoted so much time and energy to the study of video games it was a video game which provided me with a very meaningful gameplay experience on various levels ludically diegetically emotionally philosophically if you wish and uh, yeah this is the game that really really um, motivated me to to study video games um, so, yeah. And your to answer your final question, uh, what video game I am playing now? Uh, I am currently struggling to play Horizon Forbidden West. I say struggling because as somebody who did a lot of research on video games uh, released around the year 2000, playing, playing video games with uh, game time standing for over 20 hours... With a huge list of mechanics, seems to be a bit out. Seems to be a bit out of hand. So I guess I'm not exaggerating when I say that I'm struggling to finish the game, and uh, I do have a deadline because I'm attending a conference on um, on on video games. Uh, the, you might be familiar with uh, the conference series Playing the Field, which uh, has uh, has reached its third edition. And I'm very happy to to have to have been accepted to the third edition of this conference, where I will deliver a talk on a, a, where I will yeah give a talk on the Horizon video games. So uh, yeah, doing my best to you know beat the game without cheating. Hopefully, I get there in time.
1: Yeah, well, some things come to my mind right here, just on top of from top of my head, so to speak. Of course, we definitely have to speak about your new book when it's coming out. That's a given. So, um, if I may ask, how
2: old are you? I'm 32 years old.
1: 32. Because that's, I have observed an interesting fact because you were mentioning Silent Hill 2 as your favorite video game. And a lot of my students, they're, let's say, in their, yeah mostly early 20s and Silent Hill 2 is one of those games that my uh, talking about uh, air quotes here my generation of, of game researchers, I'm in my mid 40s we all know about this game and we all seem to value it a lot or have something to say about it or put interesting questions research questions um, but my students on the other hand they really don't get it. They don't get this game. It's just something old, they tell me. So it's a bit frustrating from time to time if we want to talk about, if I want to talk about Silent Hill 2 with them. So maybe, uh, maybe it's not all lost because you're 10, over 10 years younger than me, uh, hoping for the best.
2: <laughs> well, um, in my courses, obviously my students are um, obliged. It is mandatory for them to play some games and uh, I make sure to include games that were released in the 2000s, in the 90s, even in the late 80s. I think it's very important for, not only for scholars, but also for students who want to become practitioners in in the industry, to have a good knowledge of uh, not, not only of the games which are popular you know at a, which are popular now but also those video games which were popular a few years ago because uh, um there are some dominant game design norms that are adapted from one generation of consoles to the other so um, i think it is in their interest to to play as many games as possible as possible on as many platforms as possible and coming from you know you know, irrespective of how old those games are, and this is something that you know I also uh, you know stress during my during my lectures. It's important to take into consideration games that have been games that were published ten, 10 years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, twenty-five years ago. It, it really gives you a a valuable bird's eye view, and uh, yeah, um, I do my. I do my best to try and familiarize my students with, with, with games that they normally maybe wouldn't play today because, you know, there is a, there is a technological barrier. I mean, if you want to play a, a game which was released for the PlayStation 2, good luck finding a PlayStation 2 and then good luck finding a, a CD of that video game which is compatible with the, version, with the second-hand version of the PlayStation 2 you managed to find on eBay or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, right. So uh, yeah, now, this is why it's important to have research centers which have you know the proper equipment and uh, at the University of Bucharest actually we do we do have the proper equipment to, as a result of the of the research projects which um, which I have taken part in and I could I could consequently. able to finance um, uh, to purchase to purchase some of these uh some of some of these consoles so yeah yeah and it's also important to see it's not
1: it doesn't stop there right because you also would need someone who's able to to repair all these things when they break down it's not that easy
2: yeah well luckily uh i've I've been teaching my courses for i guess two years this is my third year Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) We haven't got to the point where the consoles have broken down, <laughs> so uh, it will be an experience to see what uh, how consoles, which were you know uh, fabricated twenty years ago, can be mended. But uh, let's hope this uh, situation doesn't crop up anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Let's knock on
1: wood. I'd like to circle back now um, to your book. So, please tell us how did you come to write? Immersion narrative and gender crisis and survival horror video games
2: Well, um as already mentioned, uh I enjoyed playing the video game silent hill 2 quite a lot. It was a uh, life-changing experience and i'm not exaggerating life-changing because that's how I Got the main idea for my dissertation mm-hmm. So uh, what happened was that, um, after while playing and after playing the game, after playing the game, I was very impressed with how much this game was able to communicate. So uh, you know, uh, it, survival horror, survival horror video games similar to Silent Hill Two are characterized by you know a very gamer unfriendly. Gameplay. The mechanics are, you know, counterintuitive. The controls are difficult to learn. I mean, in principle, if you think of a game such as Silent Hill Two, mm-hmm. uh, you wouldn't consider it to be the most playable or the most player friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what really, you know, shocked me uh, while uh, back back when I was playing the game was uh, the game's ability to keep me really engaged in in the events and really immersed in its story world despite this you know cumbersome gameplay which you know had it been any other any other video game i I might have just you know dropped the controller dropped the keyboard and you know stop playing but no this did not happen and the there there arose the research question which then paved the way to to the book i i i wrote and which was published um well, published in two thousand twenty one, and a second edition, an improved edition in two thousand twenty two. Uh, why? How did that game succeed in keeping me immersed despite its gameplay? And uh, that's how I ended up writing this book, because uh, whilst trying to understand how Silent Hill, Silent, no, sorry, while trying to understand how Silent Hill two as a video game works rhetorically and manages to um, immerse the player i realized that this is not that this was not specific to silent hill 2 only but that this was specific to a um to the genre to the survival horror genre mm-hmm. and uh, basically what i the main argument of my book is that to put it in very very simple terms because i assume we will you know get to discuss this in more detail uh, during this show yeah. uh this you know most action-adventure video games immerse players in a very, you know, standard way. They give the they, they give players more immediacy, more uh, intuitive controls, more engaging in-game activities. Therefore, they end up uh, immersing the player. Obviously, this is not the case with survival horror video games where immersion works, but in a very different manner. Immersion in survival horror video games... Um, lay's um rests first and foremost on their narrativity i e on their ability to tell stories in a more persuasive and expressive way than many than maybe other um actual adventure video games and their ability to assign diegetic meaning to this very gamer unfriendly gameplay to these. Cumbersome and ineffective game mechanics to these counterintuitive, sometimes annoying, often frustrating controls that are often difficult to master.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, you know, this was basically the hypothesis uh, that I, uh, you know, reached as I was as I was doing my working on my dissertation, and uh, after you know graduating from the doctoral school. I published my dissertation and then wrote this book, where I, um, you know, managed to uh, basically prove this hypothesis. I hope I have proven this hypothesis. Yeah. We'll see what uh, readers and reviewers have to say.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, we have talked, or you have talked about a little bit about immersion um, already, but let's let's uh, deep dive uh, into this for a second or a moment or even. <laughs> More than just a moment. Because your book is divided into three main parts. And the first one is titled Immersion and Gender in Action Games. And you decided to split it up further. Now let's talk about your first branch under the headline Immersion in Mainstream Action Games. Maybe you could us you could guide us through your understanding of the term immersion itself here a bit.
2: Mm -hmm. yeah um well immersion is you know one of the main things that pop to mind that when when people think of video games video games are considered to be one of the most immersive uh, popular media out there and uh i guess you know people are right um and because immersion has been such a buzzword surrounding video games for ever since they they you know uh, entered the market and became mm-hmm. very popular uh, a lot of a lot of literature has been written on um, on the topic now uh because uh, the goal of my um of my book was to focus on a specific type of video game a specific sub genre the survival of video games what i tried to do was to provide a um, a more on the one hand, a, a, a more, a simple yet encompassing understanding of immersion. But, I mean, si- yes, simple and encompassing, but also palatable to the goal of my research, namely that of understanding how survival horror video games work. Um, so, um, when speaking of immersion, by drawing on the rich existing literature, um I uh, I basically define immersion as a uh, concatenation of three elements immediacy, interactivity and narrativity mm-hmm. um, immediate uh, and again, all these three components have been discussed in various other articles and and books and um, my my uh, my thesis is that Basically, when we assess immersion in video games, we have to see to what extent games can be uh, immediate, interactive, and narrative. Mm-hmm. But basically, immediacy refers to uh, immediacy is a is, is a concept which applies not only to video games but to media in general. And uh, immediacy is uh, the immediacy is basically. Uh, the ability of a medium to erase itself the ability of a medium to represent or simulate an object an event in such a way so that so that the viewer the player the reader the spectator becomes unaware of the mediation Mm -hmm. yeah Um, and and this is a concept you know coined by Walter and Grusin and it's one of the you know cornerstone concepts of of, uh, media studies today Mm -hmm uh interactivity obviously refers to the ability of video games to um uh, assign responsibility to the player in creating or in co-creating the material signs of the emitted by the medium which we then use cognitively to create the mental story world represented and simulated by the video game yeah uh now obviously again interactivity is a concept which is uh, which has been a, you know, a, a heated topic of debate in the last years, uh, because um, you know, there are very many technologies out there which are interactive, but not all of them are as meaningfully interactive as interactivity in video games. Mm. So um, when I speak of interactivity, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I specifically refer to the meaningful, ludic, and diegetic interaction that, that video games afford. So uh, interacting with a video game is very different from interacting with a television by yeah. using the remote control. Mm-hmm. So this is basically it. interactivity, the ability of video games to provide players with ludic challenges, uh, which then the players can solve by, by means of the, of the game mechanics. So it's basically this process, this process of uh, story world co- co-creation where uh, a lot of responsibility for what story world is simulated and represented by the by the medium of, by the medium of the by the medium of the video game rests on the shoulders of the player. Yeah, it's you know it is by virtue of the player's agency, ludic agency and energetic agency that a, that a series of events take place on the screen and not another one. So this would be one of the components of immersion. Therefore, in principle, the more interactive the game is, i.e., the more ludically and diegetically meaningful your input as a player in a video game is, in theory, the higher the immersion should be. And finally, there is the, the third pillar, that of narrativity, Yes. Which I think is very important. Uh, narrativity is a concept uh, coming from second second wave cognitive narrative theory. So in cognitive narrative theory, um, there has been this preoccupation for um, providing a new understanding of the concept of narrative to include the variety of narrative practices which exist out there. So basically, people like David Herman will say that narrative theory historically, was very good at, you know, explaining to us how, say, novels communicate narrative meaning, how films communicate narrative meaning. But, unfortunately, traditional narrative theory isn't particularly uh, adept to, uh, you know, analyze, give insight into a whole range of other narrative practices which institutionally were not always favored. I mean, let's face it. No one would have imagined a course in storytelling in video games in the nineties. Yeah. So uh, this is why you have this concept of narrativity. Which, of course, when David Herman came uh, came up with this with this idea, uh, he wasn't specifically, you know, referring to video games. I mean, he might have considered them, but uh, his book, Basic Elements of Narrative, does not approach video games, if, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. However, I realized that uh, his concept was very, very useful, fruitful and generous and provided me with the uh, theoretical scaffolding to understand how video games can also be narratives. Of course, not all video games are narratives. And this is a very broad discussion, which I don't think we have the time to uh, to go into. Yeah, would be. Yeah, I would love to, if, but no. Yeah, I mean, we can have another show on that if you if you yeah. want to. But uh, uh, basically, by means of David Herman's concept of narrativity, uh, I ended up being able to assess the level of narrativity of games. So, to what extent a video game can be considered a narrative, mm-hmm. based on his prototypical definition of narrative. So, David Herman, you know, draws a lot on prototype theory. It's it's a whole it's a whole thing there. Don't have time to go into it. So basically, uh. To, to draw the conclusion of my understanding of, of immersion or the understanding of immersion which I propose in the, game, in, the in the book and which I insist it is, is not necessarily revolutionary. It's more of a uh, review of existing literature and highlighting those elements which are common to various studies. The yeah. conclusion I draw is that immersion rests on a video game's ability to be... Uh, transparent, i.e. immediate, so to erase its mediation, to be interactive, i.e. to provide players with meaningful ludic and diegetic interaction with the story world of the game, so uh, yeah, giving players meaning, meaningful interaction, the ability to interact meaningfully, and finally, narrativity, the, the ability of video games to uh to stage the events to to uh, yeah that's I guess that's a proper word to stage the events in such a way so that by means of of the limited in, means of interaction provided with the player a quote unquote good story ensues and right. uh, this is my, my understanding of uh, of immersion and uh, this is in my view the way in which, mainstream action adventure video games try to immerse video games if you look at the history of action adventure video games uh it, it, you know it, it's as if video games have been engaged in a immersion arms race you know each new game since for you i mean ever since i can remember each new game has always promised players a more immediacy a better mechanics more convincing and expressive means of narrative communication, you know? I mean, you know, if you look, for instance, at uh, the evolution of consoles and the rendering capacity for graphic cards, uh, the idea of constantly bettering the representational abilities, constantly providing players with more, more levels, more abilities to interact with the game, more mechanics, and so on and so forth, you know, has led to this, you know, progressive uh, understanding of, of immersion, which rests on this, you know, um, but which is but by this idea that the more you have, the better it is,
1: hmm.
2: which is, uh, you know, um, an idea which is challenged, in my yeah. view, by um, older survival of horror video games. Yeah comes the word
1: hyper hyperrealism comes to my mind there right?
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: Well in your second branch then called the gender politics of immersion, you start out by stating that and I quote here video games are not politically neutral artifacts. Again, video games are not, politically neutral artifacts. Now, I assume when it comes to gender politics in general these days, it's hard to find neutral positions at all. Where would you put digital games in this
2: discourse then? Well, um, obviously, uh, video games, like all all popular media, are um, a part of culture, and they influence the, the dominant culture whilst also being influenced by the dominant culture so we have this dialogical relationship between the dominant culture and video games Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
2: the point i'm trying to make there is basically you know uh, i'm basically reiterating a i am basically reiterating the position of cultural studies and i later adapt them to adapt it to uh the medium specificity of video games so as to draw a uh, correlation between the way in which games immerse players and the way in which gender is represented and simulated or you know, and in order to better highlight the ideological position which individual games can take with respect to gender. Yeah.
1: Um
2: so yeah, obviously uh video games like any other media are not politically neutral. They the way in which they represent and simulate gender is very important simply because many of these games are so popular that they end up being played by millions of people out there yeah so uh, it's very important that we also take into consideration the social dimension of these video games because you know they do play a role in the way or i mean they video games because they are so popular because they are so time consuming because they are so immersive yeah. they do play a role in The way we perceive the world, other people, other people, gender identities. I generally think that video games can shape, to a certain extent, our perceptions and understandings of gender, which is why a critical understanding of the way gender is represented in video games is required. Uh, This has been the case in in the past years. But I think that, uh, 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 you know, unfortunately, for many years, video games were because video games, unfortunately, did not benefit from a lot from a lot of cultural capital. Mm -hmm. So they were like, you know, for for many years, they were deemed unworthy of being studied in academia, of, you know, being the subject of critical theory. A lot happened. (laughs) There were very many video games which were very popular and very problematic, but not really benefit for the from the type from the type of criticism they would have needed in order for the franchises to improve them to improve themselves. And I think that uh, recent um, recent efforts to you know make video games which are more open to diversity are also the result is are also the result of uh, recent attempts in academia to include video games in syllabi to fund research projects that focus on video games to encourage cultural critics and people doing cultural studies and people doing political readings of culture to devote their attention to video games so uh, basically this book is part of this ongoing effort on the part on you know on the part of academia to work towards a more inclusive and more tolerant gaming culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
1: now let's let's hope for the best here right i mean it's a, that's that's one of the the most challenging pathways hmm. at this point of of your book we are, we are entering your second part titled classical survival horror games And after my initial shock of not being able to find Haunted House and Sweet Home on your list, I calmed down again. You take a very close look at the usual suspects, such as Resident Evil and Silent Hill. So I wonder, how did you pick these games? And maybe you can also talk a bit about your method of
2: analysis.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Sure. Well, to begin with... um... Yeah, Sweet Home and Haunted House. I do acknowledge them in some footnotes, actually. <laughs> but uh, uh, the problem with... So any endeavor to talk about the history of a genre involves selecting some games, some books, some films, and and paying less less attention to others. Yes. Also, espe- especially when one wants to draw some historical boundaries... You know, there is a level of arbitrariness, which I, I acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, games such as Sweet Home are part of what I think can be referred to as the prehistory of the survival horror genre. Mm-hmm. To me, the first fully fledged survival horror video game is the first Resident Evil, which paved the way for one strand of what I call classical survival horror. And then you have Silent Hill. Uh, succeeded then by Silent Hill Two, which really you know paved the way to for another strand in the what I call classical survival horror. Okay. So, um, but a few words about the so, so, so yeah, I mean the reason why Sweet Home is not there is because I consider Resident Evil to be the f- first fully fledged survival horror video game, um, and uh, I am aware that you know many survival many hardcore survival horror video game fans might be shocked that many of the titles they are familiar with and may not be there but the whole point of this book was not to provide overviews of games or genres because we have that already mm-hmm. when i when i conceived this book i well, it was my intention to provide a series of rep- of case studies of representative video games yeah because what i felt was lacking in in uh, in game studies literature was uh, precisely this in-depth analysis of the political rhetoric of video games mm-hmm. and uh, basically what I did was to choose representative video games provide in-depth analysis in order to support my hypothesis now to focus on on what you know the, the method was well so uh, first in the first chapter I uh, I discuss I provide a theoretical groundwork for immersion in the second chapter i highlight and this is something that is important i highlight the manner in which gender representation and gender simulation relates to immersion or to the way in which video games um, attain immersion i think that one of the most important findings of my book is the fact that I, i is the correlation which i identify between the immersion strategy employed by a video game and its repre- and its representation of gender basically what i noticed is that action-adventure video games which try to maximize their immediacy interactivity and narrativity are more likely to uh, opt for a very standard conservative even sexist representation of gender so in other words maximizing immediacy interactivity and narrativity i.e. achieving immersion via maximization is more likely to produce uh, um, conservative representation of gender so this is you know one, um, one of the, one of my findings and mm-hmm. then what i noticed and this is very interesting was that Survival horror video games, because they do not try to immerse the player by maximizing their immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity, they then have the possibility to represent gender identities in a way so in such a way so as to subvert gender norms, dominant gender norms. So basically, what I argue in my book is that Whilst most action-adventure video games try to achieve immersion via the maximization of immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity, survival horror video games, or to be more precise, classical survival horror video games, the games released roughly in between 1996 and 2004-2005, immerse the players by, and this is very interesting, lowering their degrees of immediacy and, and interactivity, but heightening their level of narrativity to the point that the low levels of immediacy and, and interactivity are narrativized. So in classical survival horror video games, yes, the controls are bad, but that, the fact that the controls are bad conveys diegetic meaning. Mm -hmm. Yes, the visual language is very cinematic. You know, many important, very, very many important ludic objects are concealed and hidden. Uh, The camera angles do not help you uh, to to play the game better. But this also conveys narrative meaning. So uh, these ludic game design choices are um are made in such a way so as to contribute to the narrative communication and um starting from this assumption i look at for instance resident evil and show how this is the case you know i show how uh uh, you know uh, the lack of the lack the low level of immediacy and the low level of interactivity um Paved the way to the representation of 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 gender identities that is really subversive. Subversive in what sense? Resident Evil is very good at achieving what we in, what what in you know uh, media studies is, is referred to as a modal dissonance or modal irony. So, uh, for instance, visually the characters are represented as stereotypical heroes or, or heroines. So if you look at Chris Redfield, he's your standard cis white hero who saves the day. So, you know, you watch the first cutscene, you see see them, you, you see the characters, you expect them to be able to, you know, fight the zombies, defeat their opponents, and then you start playing, and all of a sudden you're super vulnerable. So visually, the game communicates, look, your character is strong, because it resonates with a series of, with a host of cliches and expectations determined by the action adventure genre. And then, wh- whilst playing, those expectations are defied because the gameplay does not allow you to live up to the expectations engendered by the visual representation. Yeah. And uh, it is this type of dissonance which, you know, puts these gender roles and gender expectations into context. And eventually, my my claim is deconstructs them. With Silent Hill 2, again, you have uh, uh, you have a video game that uh, has low levels of immediacy and interactivity, but a high level of narrativity. Why? Because, uh, uh, for instance, the, the the cumbersome gameplay, the counterintuitive controls. Yes, may not be very fun to, may not be very engaging, ludically speaking, but diegetically they make a lot of sense because they can be construed, and the game basically cues you to do so, Yeah, uh, they can be construed as a procedural representation of the vulnerability of the playable character, who himself is traumatized by his inability to live up to the standard cis white male gender role so some of two is about what the the protagonists inability to uh, enact the role of the savior and you know the cumbersome control then you know is basically what a procedural representation of this uh constant failure to live up to the artificial gender role yeah um and this is why both these games are very immersive because uh Yes, gameplay is, well, quote unquote, unquote, bad, for lack of a better word. But although it is not very, it doesn't abide by, you know, our expectations as far as gameplay is concerned, they are very engaging. They are engaging because they communicate narrative meaning. And the narrative meaning they communicate is also very, very subversive, very subversive. And um, uh, I should also mention that, you know, Resident Evil is a game which has been criticized for its sexism. And yes, there is a lot of sex, the the gender representation is the first Resident Evil is sexist. However, if you provide a deeper rhetorical analysis of the game, I think that we can, it is safe to, to claim that, Those that the game ends up undermining the very sexist representations that many other scholars have astutely acknowledged, remarked, and criticized. So, um, yeah, um, this is how this is basically how my how the second part of my of my book works. I show how survival horror video games immerse not by maximizing immediacy, interactivity, by narrativity, but by you know compensating for the low levels of immediacy and interactivity with the help of their high level of narrativity and how this then enables them to simulate and represent characters um, whose digitic profile and whose ludic profile, i.e. the way you control them, the way you play with them, undermine Mm -hmm. conventional understandings of gender.
1: Yeah. Well and then and then finally finally it's time for for your third part in your book and you have uh, you have uh, you have arrived at at what you call post-classical survival horror games and I got to admit that I instantly thought about an article from Steve Rose in the Guardian titled I called it post-horror and now I've created a monster where he where he seemingly cries out loudly, what are the boundaries? How much can you subvert the rules before you are not in the genre anymore? Who decides? Clearly not me. So, um, here's my trick question, and this is only fair because we have entered Spooktober now. Sir, have you been creating a monster as well?
2: (laughs) Good question. Well, um, yes you know uh one of the one of the things they teach you when when you attend research seminars at universities that you know you're supposed to come up with a coherent methodology, and they all say, do not create methodological monsters. <laughs> I hope my book is not a methodological monster i <laughs> I, I put a lot of effort, uh, i put a lot of effort into that first part, and uh, the feedback I have received so far has been positive so yeah um, Fortunately, it is not a methodological monster, but definitely post-classical survival horror video games are monstrous because they are very hybrid and heterogeneous in terms of game design. So, um, I've just said that classical survival horror video games are characterized by this, you know, specific way in which they uh, they um, achieve immersion, what I call immersion via narrativization. So. You have, a, you have a tricky, gamer-unfriendly gameplay, which is narrativized by the story. All of a sudden, gameplay is not so much uh, fun because it's enjoyable to play, but rather it, it becomes fun because it communicates narrative meaning. This is only to a, to a specific extent uh, valid for post-classical survival horror video games, which try to sort of get closer to the dominant game design norms of the action-adventure genre. So uh, if you look at post-classical survival horror video games, you will notice that many of them use first-person shooter mechanics. Others use the the game mechanics of uh, standard hack-and-slash third-person video games. So these games are not so player-unfriendly as the older, survival horror video games were. Uh, obviously, this relativizes this uh, immersive strategy, which I call immersion via narrativization, and which I think is uh, representative for classical survival horror video games. Post classical survival horror video games try to find a middle ground between, uh, you know, the, um, the impetus towards, you know, gamer-friendly video games and immersion via maximization, and the critical de- deconstructive impulses of classical survival horror video games. Uh, basically, when I say post-classical survival horror, I, I speak about this very heterogeneous host of horror, of, of horror video games which negotiate between these two contradicting impulses. Mm-hmm. The norms of mainstream action-adventure video games and immersion of maximization and the norms of classical survival horror video games such as Resident Evil, Silent Hill, Dino Crisis, Fatal Frame, Forbidden Siren, and mm-hmm. others, yeah. And their deconstructive impulses and gamer unfriendly designs. Uh, so, um, what what I show in my uh, in my third part, in, in my third and final part of my book, is that these games are very heterogeneous both in terms of game design and therefore also in terms of gender politics so some games tend to maintain the deconstructive and critical impulses of the of the the older ones whilst others are more how should i put it standard normative to give you an example resident evil 4 So as I said, you know, the first Resident Evil had many uh, sexist representations of gender, but many of those representations were um, undermined by the gameplay provided by the video game. This is no longer the case in Resident Evil 4, where you no longer have the modal dissonance or the modal irony of the first Resident Evil. In Resident Evil 4... The standard cis white male protagonist saving the day against a host of uh, othered beings is enacted. So you know this story is no longer um, as uh, the, the critique of uh, of of the of the previous installments is no longer there. Um, on the other hand, you have games such as Hellblade and you have Sacrifice where Yes, you do have very many um, game design choices and game design norms which are borrowed from, you know, mainstream AAA uh, hack and slash third person video games. Mm. But this this does not prevent the, the video game from articulating a critique of patriarchy. Which is also very complex because what is very fascinating about Hellblade Senior sacrifice is the fact that uh, what we're dealing with there is a critique of patriarchy at the intersection with sanism. So, um, I argue in my book, this is a game that, although it uses conven- many of the conventional game design norms of hack and slash video games, it does manage to recuperate immersion via narrativization and therefore it is able to convey a critique of patriarchy which is uh, reminiscent of the classical era of the golden age era of uh, survival horror
1: yeah Mm, i see well we've taken up a lot of your time now And we have also been talking a bit about your ongoing projects, but besides from your publishing activities, what are you working right now? And of course, what will you be playing next aside from horizon when there's maybe a bit more time?
2: Uh, Well, you know, we people working in academia uh, use a lot of free time to read more and maybe to prep classes. Uh, uh, Aside from that, you know, I just, i cook vegan and work out <laughs> in any way relevant um uh, i i'm not vegan but i cook vegan because my spouse is vegan so you know mm. it makes sense Only um, now the problem is that if you live in romania it's very difficult to be vegan it's very difficult yeah And i'm based in romania so it's a challenge yeah Uh, Yes, and working out, I mean, the pandemic has not been very healthy for all of us with all that sitting inside and not moving around, so I need to get into a healthier shape. So uh, this is what I do aside from uh, writing articles, reading articles, prepping classes, uh, and playing video games. Uh, The next video game which I want to play um, is and I, I shamefully admit I have not played it yet, Death Stranding. Because I am very interested in how masculinity is represented there, how it relates to the mechanics, how the game emerges the player, uh, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's something that I might also want to, to discuss with my students. So, uh, again, you know, it's a... Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, the, the idea is to play it as, you know, as leisure, but uh, i think that it is a it is a leisure activity which can also be useful for my for my teaching and maybe even for my research yeah. so this is if you wish I, this is the game that is on my list and yet yeah, it, it has been out there for a while but uh, i just have not had the time to to play it and i hope to be able to play it soon
1: if it if it's some sort of of mental support for you i haven't played it as well so Living in the, sh- in the same sh- shame boat as you, sir. <laughs> You're kind. Yeah. I want to thank you for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed it since I learned a lot. And I can also, I can only, sorry, I can only recommend to get your hand on that specific book. It's a great read. So thank you again and take care and goodbye. Thank
2: you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So, dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me. To get in touch, please send us a message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Inderst almost everywhere. Have a good one and stay healthy.